2: Welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddow, and it's great to have you with us for another battle of the books, war of the words, fight of the fiction. If it's your first time listening, well welcome and we hope you enjoy this episode and many more from the backlist which are all available for free anytime you like. And for all our regular listeners, high fives all round, it's great to have you here too of my first guest today has published around 100 short stories, essays and poems in Scots, Gaelic and English. Here to tell us about his memoir Fishtown which is his first book it's John Gerard Fagan. Hello welcome to you. Hi how are you doing Joel? Very well thank you and it's lovely to have you with us. And my second guest has recently completed her master's in development studies and currently works in the non-profit sector for women's rights and gender equality. She was chosen as one of the two winners of the first ever Murky Books New Writers' Prize and her debut collection of poetry was published earlier this year. Here to talk about that and many other things is Monica Radijewicz. Hello, welcome.
3: Hi, hello. Lovely to be here.
2: It's great to have you both here and we're connecting a uh, Edinburgh, aren't we, John? Uh, with London, which is where I am. And, and where are you, Monica?
3: Uh, I'm in Kent. I'm in Tunbridge Wells, where I live.
2: Oh, very nice.
1: Very yeah. lovely.
2: <laughs> and it's a bit dreek up there, is it, John?
4: Aye, it's uh, it's not the best of weather of the day, but it's meant to get good tomorrow. It's meant to be sunny, so I'll be going to the beach. Ah, <laughs> oh, OK. Get get yourself uh, in that sea. Uh, I've got to wait, so you need one up here. Right, aye. <laughs>
2: Yeah, but, well, I, hey, I know some people who live in the, uh, on the south coast who still wear a wetsuit, so, you know, it's, I, I would yeah. understand the need for one-up in, uh, in Scotland, yeah. Um, it's great to have you both here, you're, you're both poets, you've both recently published your first book, so I, I want to talk about those, I want to talk about the, the power of poetry, the, the, the seeming resurgence of it, and, of course, we'll be finding out later which books you're going to champion in the book off but we'll come to that soon um john let's talk about fishtown because this is your first book as i mentioned and it documents your time spent in japan between 2013 2019 so could you just set up how you came to be in japan in the first place and then can you describe fishtown for us yeah so like back in
4: 2010 like that sort of time frame. Or well, even since I graduated, I wasn't really getting any permanent work. So it was a lot of temporary contracts. And I'd done like two degrees and a master's. And I still wasn't getting anything that I wanted. or did anything really. I was doing debt collecting. I was doing factory work. I was doing all sorts of jobs. But nothing was really sticking. So I decided I have to make a change. I'm in my late 20s now. And I'm thinking if I don't do anything, this is going to be my life. So I decided, i seen a little advert for teaching abroad and I'd done a TFL course and I thought, you know, I can use my creative writing masters and I'll teach. I'll do that for a summer, maybe a little bit more and see what happens. So I found Japan and decided, okay, I'll go for it. I memorised a five minute introduction. memorised how to answer questions I didn't understand, just like usual Japanese phrases got the job and I was like here we go and that sort of sets up the start of the book I just I sold everything in Scotland I just like get rid of my flat rid all my belongings I had a suitcase and I was like right right that's that bye Scotland off I'm going and just went for it and just went for it (laughs) how's
3: your how's your Japanese
4: it's good like it took me a long time to get like any sort of fluency because it's so different, I wasn't really prepared for it, do you know what I mean? The different alphabets they've got, they've got like three. And uh, so reading at the start, and it was just... I could get the basics done okay, like Konnichiwa, Hajime like certain introductions. But after that, it was quite... Because it's very hard to like listen into as well and get to grips. It takes a number of years before you're actually comfortable. To actually know that you're alright speaking
2: for a conversation, but have you been to Japan, Monica?
3: Yeah, um, I have. Uh, my so I went uh, a couple of years ago. Um I was only there for three days, um, to my eternal regret. Um <laughs> but yeah, I, I was I went to Tokyo because I was um I was in Korea um for a month. So I was like, Well, Japan's just a stone's throw Um but my, my partner's actually Japanese, um so there is a lot of Japanese food and language and culture um, in our in our home in our life. So, and I do. I, I mean, I'm determined to go back uh, for for longer than three days.
4: Are you learning Japanese then?
3: Um, I've tried. Um, I've <laughs> I can I can say a few words. I'm not going to say them here um, for for fear of embarrassing my partner and his family. Um, but I've, I, I'm I'm attempting to. I speak. Um, basically, I speak a few languages imperfectly already. So my goal is to try and perfect a couple of those ones before I take on another, so like half speak another language, basically.
2: <laughs> Good idea. Right? Um, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about uh, the way you write this book, John, which I'll come back to in a minute. Um, Monica, let's just talk about teeth in the back of my neck briefly because. Uh, it's 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 a murky books publication as I mentioned who are doing some amazing work how did it feel when you won this new writers prize and and how does it feel now to have this first collection published
3: uh well I mean I think it was one of the best moments of my life um (laughs) not an understatement I think you know I I'd always wanted to write I'd always read I'd always written in some kind of in some form but I think what tends to happen unfortunately is that um you, know, you are discouraged from pursuing a career in writing sometimes because the perception is you won't make any money um it's an unstable career and uh that was really drummed into me i think not intentionally but you know with with all with love um as parents who'd experienced poverty themselves and who were really determined not for me not to go down a similar path um so i was encouraged to focus on other things and Uh, You know, I was thankful and grateful that I I did really love what I studied. I love where I work now, which is very different to my writing. Um, But it's not something you can ever let go of. It's really, it's like an impulse. You know, I write very instinctively. Mm -hmm. And so having not had a chance, having not had much of an opportunity to write for quite a few years, when I um, heard about this prize, uh, I'd had something that I'd been sitting with, um, this one poem, which is called 23 and Me. And I didn't know what to do with it, but I wanted to do something with it. And it seemed like this was the perfect vessel because what they wanted, what they were looking for was stories um, that weren't really told. And this Mm. was a story um, of a habit that I have of going to DNA testing websites, watching all their videos, reading about um, how amazing it is to discover where you're from and your identity, and just really craving that feeling and that sense of discovery and just being way too afraid and kind of backing out at the last second from buying one of those kits. Um and so that that poem is what um won me the prize along with my co-winner and uh you know from there it was it suddenly became much more daunting and much more real and that it was, it was a sense of like okay now what story do you want to tell because I didn't just want to write a book about um not about not knowing where you're from and trying to find that out. I, I, I mean, I wanted the collection to be a lot broader than that and touch on a lot, a lot of other topics that were somehow relevant and intertwined. So it was then a, a process of about um, a year. Most of the writing happened in about three months, but it was the process of, of learning, like discovering my poetic voice and learning how to turn, uh, how to turn a series of poems into a story, how to build a narrative between them, how to structure all of that. So it was a real learning process for me, and it was yeah, it was so enjoyable. I, I loved, I loved the process. So I mean, it was it was surreal. It still is surreal.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, both of these books are they feel hugely personal. I mean, John, yours is a memoir, therefore by its very nature, it is going to be about you or about you know your stories. Um, and Monica, your your poems feel again very personal they're about you know uh, experiences they're, they're about identity so a question for both of you and I'll come to you first John how, how do you how did you feel about readers or sort of getting so much insight into your life you know because writing it is one thing sending it to your editor and agent is another and then when it's like oh anyone can pick up this book now you know what does that how does that feel
4: i think like your first feeling is anxiety it runs yeah. through you're like <laughs> yeah you're sharing something that i didn't really expect first of all that i was going to be sharing with anybody because i've written like wee travel journals before and they've just been for me hmm. no one else has ever seen those this was the first thing you're writing about your life so you don't have a character so you're going to get judged and so it's like it's human to like like that show you're out there and it's for other people to decide. So it does give you a bit of anxiety to start with but then after a while that goes after more than a few people have read it and they're giving you back their impression positive or negative. You think well it's now their story in a way. It's like it's, I've written it's mine but now you can take whatever you want from it. And that's the power I think of publishing really. Mm. put it out there and then it belongs to someone else. How they interpret it and stuff. So it's good in that way.
2: What about you, Monica?
3: Oh, I think I agree with a lot of what um, John said there. But uh, I mean, what I really noticed myself doing when I, uh, after I'd won the prize and I had a, a publishing contract, and I started to write, so you know, for me, I sort of I got it a little bit backwards in that I had the publishing contract before I had the actual work written. Um, so I, I was writing, you know, very aware that somebody else, uh, multiple other people would hopefully be reading the work and it I have to you know I have to say it really did impact um, how I wrote at the very beginning and that I suddenly went into this spiral of like they won't understand what I mean so I've got to like make it super obvious let me put in like 10 extra lines to try and explain what I'm what I want to say and it yeah I would say it diminished the quality of my work and it took a few months um kind of working through that to go back to the more you know subtle I wouldn't I wouldn't say I'm the most subtle writer but I had it was it was very obvious and perhaps too obvious and so it yeah it took a few months for me to settle back into something that felt more authentic and I was more comfortable with but you know I think especially with poetry it's I I I see it almost as like singing solo on a stage with no backing vocals no instrument you know it's it's super vulnerable it's it's your entire life if you're writing about that like like we are if it's it's your history it's um for me there was grief there was anger there was you know pain there was um very personal things that happened to me because of of you know my gender because of my background you're putting all of that on a plate and you're essentially asking somebody to judge that um or interpret that in some kind of way and it's I think it's one of the most vulnerable things you can do, so anxiety is is absolutely right the fear that somebody will misinterpret what you're saying or or you know take it in a way that you really don't intend it to you you have to i think there's a certain um act of letting go of once once you've released your work, you have to let go of your agency and your kind of protectiveness of it and understand you know once it's out there people are going to interpret it and how they, you know, in different ways they're going to read different things from it. And so far the result has been um, really beautiful and that people have, have reached out with interpretations of what I've written and, and drawn things from it that I didn't inter- like, didn't even think of. And that that's been actually one of the most incredible experiences so far. So I think that act of letting go um, is it's, it's a painful one, but I think you have to do it if you're going to enjoy, you know, having your book out there, your work out there.
2: Yeah. In fact, earlier on in this very series, we had an author called Jason Mott on, and he was saying that uh, uh, sort of what you're saying, and I think he's sort of nine books in now, and he said he's learnt that a reader will always find themselves in the story. And so, there. Whatever you, as the writer, is saying or meaning to say, will not necessarily be what a, ra- what a reader takes from it. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. That's sort of what we're saying now. It's 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 how we as readers reflect on your words, essentially, and experiences. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in the in the form and style of your book, John, because to look at it, one might think it is a collection of poetry because the chapters or vignettes or whatever you want to call them they're they're short and they're they're sort of written in this in this really lovely prose but it, it it's not it's not necessarily you know complete prose if that's a fair yep. um what what made you want to write it in this way or is that just how it happened yeah i didn't really set out to put it in that way i, w- I would say
4: um it sits in like a wasteland between poetry and prose it's kind of like it floats in between it and there's nothing really much that's too similar to it. So, I think that wasn't intentional. Like, I was writing little stories on my phone just about my life there. And, like, the style just developed from it. I didn't want to be writing paragraphs. And, like, before I get published, I thought I might have to change this into a more traditional form because it's a little bit experimental and people will not know where to put it. Is it poetry? Is it prose? What sort of book is this and that? Well put a lot of people off. So I was lucky with my publisher that they were absolutely fine with it. To take the risk sort of thing. But um, it wasn't designed in that way. It just sort of fell that way. I do have, like, Bukowski influenced me a lot. His uh, collection of, uh what was it? Burning in Fire, Drowning in Flames. Burn in the water, drowning in the flames. That's right. a brilliant collection. Um, but that's from his life for like thirty, forty years. And uh, he wrote little stories like that, but not joined up. So I read a lot of that when I was younger. And uh, that sort of played my mind as well. Like you can write something and you don't have to be putting a form to it. You can just put it out mm-hmm. And hopefully people will get it and if they don't, they don't it's not for them. Like I was lucky I was writing for myself, but Monica said that she got her publishing first and she to write she knew she had an audience. I think mm-hmm. that's that would be difficult for me. I think for especially for this book. So well done for getting yeah, around okay. that. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that uh, your work would have changed if you knew if you didn't know you were writing it for an audience?
3: um oh that's a good question i think i think it would have been more self involved um if i if i was just writing for myself um because i use writing as a way to process you know experiences at, at anything that's happened in life um, and I was using it at the time as well to process a lot of feelings, um, n- not none of which were particularly positive around, you know, my history, my, my parents' history. My parents are both immigrants. Um, um, some very personal things that were going on in my family. And but, you know, actually, I'm very grateful that it happened this way around because there's another side of me which I hadn't realized I could really talk about in my poetry, but I always had been. Uh, in in different ways, and it's it's the the political stuff, the kind of meaty societal stuff, the big stuff um, that is kind of my bread and butter, and it's 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 where I work at the moment. It's who I am as a person. So it was a a gift because it allowed me to say, hang on, like here is what I want to say. Here is the here are the things that I need other people to listen to and to hear. And I have this platform. I have this medium in which I can convince people by making them upset or angry or or happy or hopeful um like what what a privilege and so it 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 meant that I um had an opportunity to be to, an opportunity to be a little bit more experimental in what I would write and a little bit more fearless in saying hey this like I want to talk about xenophobia. I want to talk about Brexit. Um, and here, like, I'm going to write about it from my experience and I want other people to care. I want to take other people into this little um, void of, of emotion, um, a lot of which is angry. Um, so I, I have this, like, hope for my book that, you know, I want people to come away from it as if they've been set on fire because um, this is a... <laughs> um, it's, it, it, you know, the intention is to make people do something afterwards and I'm not sure it would have been as strong of a collection to be very honest if I had just been focusing on my own experiences Um, and I was able to kind of weave those two things together and and that's why the structure of my book is the way that it is.
1: That's
2: a great question John Um, and I've spoken to a lot of friends and authors and friends that are authors uh, uh, over the last few years about how they have, or what they've experienced since Brexit, essentially, Um, you know, in terms of hostility towards them and a a sense that something's changed, not just that 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 decision's been made, but a change towards them. And I got a sense of that from your poems, Monica, as well, of, of that sort of the identity of being in the UK at this time. And that change, you know, that perhaps was there, but it's just, I don't know, risen to the surface. And I just wondered if that was something you've also experienced.
3: Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. Um, it, I think you're right. It was something that had lingered there, but it was it was something, whatever it was, it was buried deep enough for us to be kind of sort of aware of it on the periphery, but it was never a daily reality And then in the years leading up to Brexit, in the years following Brexit, um, things really did change quite drastically in that it suddenly became something that we had to confront all the time. So my family, we we own a restaurant um, and a pub um, combined and and I used to work there. I worked there until I was 22, I think 23. Um, And that means you're meeting a lot of people mostly English people, because of the area that we were in. And it means that you're navigating questions. um, Who are you? Where are you from? um, Where are your parents from? Every single day, pretty much. And because I look quite ambiguous, people don't really know. And so it became um, what used to be a question that I really enjoyed answering. It became a question that I would dread and really didn't like engaging with because you can never tell the reactions of people and especially um you know as a woman it men men tend to use that question um as a as a way in to then uh chat you up basically and when you're also in a position where they're a customer and you're you're in a in a service role there are all these power dynamics at play and those are kind of magnified by gender and also by you know looking ambiguous and not really wanting to answer those kinds of questions and i should be clear as well that my my family my dad is is from montenegro montenegro is not part of the eu so it it wasn't even something that was affecting us on a, a kind of lived experience kind of way because my family had like we'd never been part of the european union um only from from the uk's side so it was never it wasn't something that was literally affecting us and affecting our livelihoods but it was something that was affecting us because People were looking at my, my dad, especially, and seeing foreign, and foreign is bad. Um, and foreign doesn't deserve to be here. So it, it completely changed. It made me completely reevaluate my relationship with this country and my relationship to my British identity.
2: Yeah. And I think it has done that for a lot of people, to be honest. And of course, John, you would have come back from Japan, right? To, to a Brexit UK. Yeah,
4: um, it's a little bit different up here in Scotland. I think everyone Yeah, disgusted that Brexit happened, the majority. We're very pro-European, pro-immigrant, very socialist up here. Yeah, so I was happy to come back to that sort of Scotland, albeit we didn't get independence while I was away. I thought that would have been much better. Brexit, for one example, is a reason why we should have went that way. Um, But a lot of people get conned by it. So yeah, it was a different world. It was a different Scotland from when I left, coming back like seven years later. And uh all this was happening and it was like even when I was over in Japan in the Brexit they were going to give a vote for it, I thought there's no chance this would happen. Thinking from a Scottish perspective, then it happened, I was like, What? But uh, yeah, and then all this it's just gonna it's just gonna get worse I think and especially for People that down in England, that native people—if you put it that way—decide who belongs here and who doesn't. When it's yeah. very multicultural now, mm-hmm. so it's like, I I wouldn't like to live in England to be honest right now. If um, in oh any we're form. all
2: we're all moving to Scotland.
3: Yeah, for I'm sure. sure. Yeah, we're,
2: we're we're coming up, mate. Like. <laughs> one up, <It's> fine. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's one thing to obviously you saw it play out from japan reading and watching the news no doubt and then you you finally came back and then what two months later it was a pandemic so you you probably yeah exactly you you've not had the greatest sort of arrival back have you to to these parts no it's like i went
4: my last port of japan was in november and then i went to singapore to meet my girlfriend that was living there and then we went traveling so we went to hong kong to meet her brother then we went to New Zealand and then we threw through China and then went to Wales and then I got this like flat in Edinburgh just as the lockdown was happening so I got really lucky that way. Yeah. And then it was like this isn't the Edinburgh I remember because nothing's open. Can't do anything. No. So it was it was weird. But um if I was stuck in Japan at the time and my little flat down there, it'd have been a lot worse because at least like I'm in more familiar settings, and I can ground myself again. Take time to get used to Scotland. Yeah. If I was just waiting about there, it'd been it'd been
2: a lot more difficult. So. And you wouldn't have had tourists like me last August coming up for the festival, right? So it must have been quite nice to have a have a quiet August. Uh, do you know what well, was actually because all the other, fit uh, Edinburgh Fringe when that
4: happens. I like the book festival. I love the book festival. Yeah. The Fringe, I'm not too much of a fan of because it's just far too busy. You can't go out for dinner. You can't go to a pub. Mm -hmm. Everything's bouncing. It's good when you're like 18, right? When you're 18 and you're completely steaming. You don't need to sleep either, do you then? You don't. No, but when you're a wee bit older and you want to, oh, go see that comedian. It's booked out. and You're like, everything's booked out. It's good. So you end up going to things that are rubbish and you're like, what am I doing? (laughs) So... But, you know, it was good to like experience Edinburgh in the summer, that there's not like a million more tourists over. So that was kind of unique yeah. and good in a way.
2: Yeah, I bet. Um, I always ask my guests what they've been reading and enjoying recently, and I want to do that in just a moment. Before we move on to that, a quick word on the power of poetry, um, which is something that I think lots of people know. It has been a very powerful way of writing, a very powerful medium for years and years and decades and centuries. But I feel like there's possibly a little resurgence in the last few years. Um, I could be wrong. Monica, you're nodding. That's great, because it means I might be might be on the right track here. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think there has been. There's been some sort of shift, and we're seeing a lot more poets, and we, we're seeing them have a, a maybe a bigger platform as well in which to showcase their work. And I just wondered what your both your thoughts were on that monica first of all cuz you were nodding, like is has there been this have you noticed it this sort of like surge of of new poets and people taking an interest in poetry
3: oh yeah i, I mean, absolutely i think it's been a really really good time to be a poet um if you're a woman if you're a person of color it's it's your time um we're at a stage now where i think poetry has been a, there's been a bit of gatekeeping mm. um amongst Uh, you know who decides what is good poetry who decides the the canon who decides what poetry gets taught in school and social media has really changed that it's really revolutionized it's almost like I mean the the most obvious person is is Rupi Kaur the Rupi Kaur effect is that you know things that might not be considered um to to be traditional poetry there's uh, has now exploded and you're seeing this incredible like you know experimental poetry or people just being a little bit fearless and being like I don't need to stick to like specific rules you know I don't need to write a sonnet if I want to write about love I can I can write about anything that you know in any way I want and I think that I just I feel like it's a great time especially for young people who might be feeling a bit alienated and disconnected from poetry um, to to like actually tap into what is going on online and to and you know I've had quite a few people say to me oh, I don't like, I don't really read poetry, you know, I didn't think I'd like poetry, but actually, I really like what you've written, because it doesn't feel like poetry, it kind of feels like a story, and uh, I, you know, I, I mean, that's great to hear, fantastic, and you know, I think, I mean, so Audre Lorde says that poetry is the language of women, and also the language of revolution, and she she's she's talking about a very specific point when she's saying those things but i really do agree with her in the sense that poetry is a space where you can be as intense as dramatic as um as you know as powerful as you need to be um to convey whatever it is you need to convey and you are given that freedom to do that i don't think women and people of color get that Um, opportunity very much in other forms because you're so quickly written off as hysterical or angry or you know a a host of other things but poetry it's almost like an it's an open space where you can go in and you can bring everything with you and that informs your writing and it, it it almost demands that other people listen it's a very rare space I think and so I'm very glad it's having a resurgence because I think that right now we're in a, in a very unstable place. There's a lot of turmoil going on in the world. I think there's a lot of insecurity and anxiety about the future, for especially amongst young people, but pro- possibly also amongst older generations because they're seeing things they don't understand that, that are very, very different to what they know. And there's a feeling of as if the ground is kind of shifting under your feet a little bit. So we do need... Um, spaces mediums art that allows people to express and and figure out things and and process and thankfully we have poetry
2: and I do think to that point of uh, you know having the comments about your poetry from someone who said oh I didn't think I really liked poetry I mean one one that's amazing and that's testament to your writing and you know to murky for for maybe getting poetry to a to a new audience as well but equally I feel like perhaps that's because what they would know as poetry is Tennyson you know exactly yeah uh they studied it at school once decided that's that's boring and now actually with the experimental poetry that's coming through in the different voices it's like oh no there is a probably a little bit of something for everyone actually so, are you feeling that as well, John? In in terms of it, you know, this resurgence and just a just a, I don't know, a little bit more exciting voices coming through.
4: Yeah, I think uh,
2: many people, when they say what well, is poetry, they think something that's
4: rhyming. So, like anyone, <laughs> yeah. Has, so just like, and that's which and it that can be. A lot of people, it can be, but that's I think that's the least effective poetry because you just limit yourself to like a joke sort of thing, like an old fashioned joke. Um, but there's so many more journals that have appeared. Like, in the past 10 years, I'd published, like, two poems in, like, French journals. But now there's so many popping up in Twitter, different ones that are just coming alive. And it's like mm-hmm. there's so many... Exactly, there's more room for more voices and different experiences and different styles and different forms. And that's that's a good thing. And that's, like, you'll get people thinking, oh, I didn't know this was poetry. Or oh, maybe I can do this. Maybe somebody would like to hear what I've got to say rather than, oh, I've got to make it rhyme or, or that, that old war poetry. That's yeah. That's what we learned at school and that, I can't relate to that. So, hmm. um, yeah, it's definitely, it's, there's a massive resurgence with it. That and the short story as well. Like mm-hmm. short, yeah. punchy things that just hit you with your emotions. That's what we need. And, like, and that's what the power of portrait is that's the power in it, it makes you feel something in a tiny little space yeah. if it's good then that's what I'll
2: do so, yeah. and I, I do love a short story or a poem before bed you know, just that <laughs> yeah. when you, you're tired but you're sort of like oh I would love to read something I don't know if I can, if I can do a whole like chapter of a novel short story, poem boom, perfect before we do the book off and find out which books you're putting up uh, against each other what have you been reading recently and enjoying because it's always great to hear uh you know what authors and poets are, are, are reading and also just to mention some really good other writers um monica have you found, found time in between your very important job and publishing your <laughs> collection to uh, read some other books
3: oh for sure um i i've recently discovered the power of the audiobook and it's it's completely changed my life completely like now I can do two things at the same time and be productive like what um but yeah I've been reading so I tend to read um I'm one of those people that needs to read more than one thing at a time um uh, just I just can't seem to focus I can't seem to sit still and and focus on one so I I tend to read one nonfiction and one fiction but I'll focus mostly on the fiction I've been reading actually I've been reading short stories lately I've gotten really into short stories um so I'm yeah I'm glad you said that I agree perfect thing before bed because you can read one maybe even two if they're really short and then you feel like yeah I've, I've you know I've, I'm that way and that much closer to finishing and and you know getting to like y- yeah you're really immersed in it and I, I love that uh I've read um so I, I've recently read um her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado, uh, which is it was incredible, uh, and she writes very poetically as well. So that was a joy to read, and it's it's a collection of short stories on on womanhood. Um, and I've just finished, uh, so I've read um, A Thousand Ships by Natalie Hayes or Hayes, yeah. um, which is all about the story of Troy, obviously told from the women's perspective in little bursts of short stories. Uh, really great uh, great. and from there I read *Cersei* because I was like this is a great new genre (laughs) I loved *Cersei*, so yeah I'm really into that at the moment and I just actually yesterday I was coming back um, up from London on the train and I finished Small Pleasures Um, oh I've forgotten her name Claire Claire Chambers yeah really really good Um, I have to admit I I don't like an ambiguous ending so I I found the ending very stressful Uh, I don't know if you've read it and I, obviously, I won't spoil anything, but um, I lo- I like my, my stories neatly wrapped up and finished and packaged, um, even though, like, I can appreciate that that's very hypocritical of me, because that's not my writing at all. My writing is a bit more open-ended, <laughs> but, yeah, I like to be told the ending. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I just finished that. I'm go- I could easily go off on a tangent. <laughs> um, and then, what else have I been reading lately? I've read, I just finished... Um, convenience store woman as well um oh her name escapes me it's it's a Japanese oh oh yes yeah um great thank you thank you John um a great story I really love that I'm actually very into um I'm I've discovered like Japanese writing and it's very very different from Western writing and I've, I find it fascinating um so I'm Probably yeah, I think my next one will probably be by a Japanese author. And actually, it's that was partially what influenced my my book that I've got for the for the Book Off challenge. I won't I won't I won't say anything yet, but yeah.
2: No, you get leave that for a little longer before we find out. But it's um, it's going to be quite interesting. Uh, the two choices that we have yeah. today, actually, <laughs> I think. And uh, what about you, John? What have you been reading and enjoying recently? Um.
4: Well, I read a book recently. Um, Nightwork with Thomas Glavinick and that has an open ending open ended ending and I loved it, I really like I kind of, sometimes I don't Monica like to be told and, <laughs> I'm, I'm shaking my head well it's like sometimes you don't want to know that it's finished or you want to leave it up for interpretation for it to flow somewhere else so that book kind of does that um, it's about a guy that wakes up and everybody's vanished so it just goes for there. I kind of like, because of the lockdown and stuff, I've been reading a lot of stuff like that. For example, The Day of the Triffids. I was like, oh wow. It's a real classic for the 50s and I thought, I've never read that. I read The, cl- the Chrysalids at school and I was like, Do you know what, I'll give this a go. And uh, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, The writing's obviously a lot different back in the 50s. It's not the best but the story is amazing. It just gripped me. I was like, within two days, I was binging it every single night and I love <laughs> books like that that you can't wait to get oh, into. Same. Do you know? And I'm I'm really disappointed when I think this is going to be amazing and I feel like when it's time to read I'm not in the mood for it. Yeah. So it's that. So that one um, is good. Fante's Ask the Dusk. I've been into John
2: Fante a lot. Oh, it's really, so good. Isn't it? It's, it's like, just one of the gr- the greatest books ever in my opinion. Yeah, I'd agree. Like, I'd
4: never read him before. Um, this year and I picked it up and like it's amazing and you think something for like just that was just as the second world war starting and you just 1939 you just get this, you're in this feeling of California and everything that's happening, it's an amazing book I'll not ruin it but I would highly recommend.
2: Uh, have you read that one Monica?
3: I I've not that. but I'm going to definitely have to, based on your reactions alone I'm going to have to add it to my to be read
2: I just, you know, I'm so glad you said that John because it's only 200 pages i think or something isn't it ridiculous really short. yeah it's dead short and it's unlike honestly unlike anything i've ever read i think the, the voice of it is unbelievable it's just ah, uh, i don't want to say anything either yeah. i don't want to say anything i just want yeah. you to read it
3: you sold you know you sold me
2: <laughs> you don't know if
4: you love or hate them and then exactly you do it, love and him. you and it changes page to page <laughs> it does yeah yeah oh, it's perfect yeah and uh I've read Post Office by Charles Bukowski. I read that because my book got compared to it. So I was interested to find out what it was. And again that's it's, it's
2: amazing. It's an amazing book. Uh, didn't it get compared by um
4: Aidan Martin? It did get compared that's what Aidan like he said, it's like post office and that's what the publisher said as well, Julianne Figutz. She said, oh, Have you read post office? And I was letting on it's that I was really like that. So that kinda influenced a lot, yeah, but Aiden put that one on. His book's amazing as well. That's another one. Because he's published by like the meant. same
2: publisher as you, right?
4: Yeah, Euphoric Recall is an amazing book.
2: It's really powerful. So And it's pretty nice to be uh, sort of compared to uh, uh, Bukowski, isn't it? That's, that's, for me, that's <laughs> like that's the peak. Yeah, that congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah.
4: Him or McCarthy, it's like that bit.
2: Yeah, yeah. What a a fabulous range of different books there that um, we've written them all down because there's loads to go to and we're going to write another two down probably after we do the book off. Um, This is where each of you is going to get three minutes to tell us about a book that you love, that you think everyone should read and you don't have to use your three minutes. But when we get to those three minute mark, if you're still speaking, I'm either going to (coughs) be ringing you out with a school bell or honking you out with the horn Uh, so let's find out which books are going head to head today Monica you've already said it's a Japanese writer which book are you putting up for the book of
3: Uh, I'm putting up Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami
2: fantastic and what about you John I am
4: putting up Takeshi Kobayashi's The Crab Cannery Ship
2: Japanese book as well. <laughs> Two <laughs> Japanese authors going head to head. I love this. Uh, before, we, uh, before we start, let's find out who's going first and second. Monica, would you like to go first or do you want to see what John's made of?
3: Yeah, I want to see what John's made of. I'll go second.
2: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, and John, at your three minute mark, if you are still talking, would you rather be rung out by the bell or would you rather have a honk? I'm going to go with a honk. I thought you might. I don't know yeah. why. I just thought you might <laughs> There with the honk. All right, I'm putting three minutes on the clock then. Uh, uninterrupted, over to you to tell us about the Crab Cannery Ship.
4: Yeah, so the Crab Cannery Ship by Takeshi Kobayashi is a book from 1929. Um, amazing author. It's a story about these workers on a crab ship above Hokkaido, between Hokkaido and Russia, and their struggle on that. So it's like a push for the Japanese empire. It's an anti-capitalist book. So the workers are getting worked to death. They're not getting paid much money and the manager and the owners of the ship don't care. They're dying in their beds. They're absolutely starving. And it's just like work, 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 work. If you die, you die. That's it. The most important thing is the profits for this company and it's true it's not like this was made up that's what's happening in 1920s 1930s japan and kobayashi actually get killed because he was very he was anti-capitalist was pro-communism in a way he get killed for his views so he didn't really get to finish the book the way it should have but it's absolutely amazing the form it's in it's been translated twice once in 1933 Um, and that's the best translation and that's online for free. The second one came out in 2013 I think it was. Um, Not as good. The language isn't as good that he's used. Far too many adverbs and a lot of word choices that were wrong but the original translation in English is amazing. Um, And the good thing about this book is there's not a protagonist. There's not main characters. It just flows like they called the student or the coal miner. Or the sailor. Um, the manager gets a name, which escapes me just now. And it's it ours but um But that's it. Everyone else is just so you can relate to them. Other people can just dive in. And it's a beautiful story about how they're struggling. But then they're pushing towards a mutiny. So you can feel it building up. You can feel it. Like searing as the the ships go up, as some of them are dying, as they're getting beaten to death, and you just feel like there's something's going to happen, and that's what it's building up to. So it's an absolute classic book, one that everyone should read. Doesn't matter your political views, um, it's something for everybody. So it's really good. Um, yeah, especially I think older books got overlooked a lot from foreign countries as well, like Japan. Um, Murakami is one of my favourites but um, I feel Kobayashi this year, since I've been reading him he's pushed up like um, his work is just amazing and he's got a lot of short stories as well so he's accessible if you don't have time for a book, and it's a short book as well as I said, I think time finish it um, so there we are there we are, there
2: we are. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, John, that was lovely I uh I've got lots of questions about this book. Um, we'll come back to it. Have a rest, have a breather. I'm putting three minutes back on the clock now. Over to you, Monica, and you're going to tell us all about Kafka on the Shore. Over to you.
3: Yes, thank you. So Kafka on the Shore, I think it was uh, written in the early 2000s. It's uh, it's two stories in one, uh, and it's very much inspired by Oedipus, the story of Oedipus. Um, so the one main character is a boy called Kafka Tamura who uh, runs away from his family and starts a new life in a private library in a different area of Tokyo um, and he goes on this incredible journey, he's, he's trying to escape a prophecy, the prophecy of um, killing his father and having sex with his mother and in the process of trying to escape that, um, much like the, the original Oedipus he actually unintentionally ends up setting things into motion. And um, on the other side is an old man um, called Nakata who had a very mysterious incident happen to him as a child. And since that incident, he discovered that he can talk to cats Um, and he lives a very interesting life as uh, a finder of lost cats. Um, And he also sets off on a journey to find a lost cat that is somehow connected to Kafka. And when they meet, there's this um, insane kind of clash of magic surrealism and spirituality. And what I really, really love about this book is, um, you know, like I said, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of the open ending. I'm not a huge fan of ambiguity. And I'm not, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily pick magic realism as my favorite genre. I think it can be done badly quite often but this was absolutely incredible it is that kind of book where you are obsessed you know where you have to you can't talk to anyone because the only thing you can do is live you know you get swallowed into the book and i you know it's it's you find yourself in a in a world where yeah cats talk um fish rain from the sky um spirits like climb out of your body when you're asleep and do terrible or amazing things um and it weaves it weaves all of these stories together but I think what it's fundamentally talking about is is kind of spirituality about your subconscious about um you know like religion as well um and how um you know if you're kind of following a path whether that's like, do you make your own prophecy? Like, do you fulfill your own prophecy? Or, you know, is it in the process of trying to run away from it that you actually set it into motion? Like, can you escape your fate? Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I just, it gripped me. And I, like, I think I, it's one of the few books as well that I've reread multiple times because it's just so good. And the attention to detail is incredible. And also it dives into Kafka. It's quite a philosophical book. So It dives into the stories of Kafka as well, uh, which is what the main character is named for. He kind sort of self-names um and then oh oh that's it and that's it I could go on I could go on I
2: know I know you had more to say um but you you got a lot in there in those three minutes I tell you that um fabulous wow both brilliant pictures both books I don't know actually I haven't read either of these um and I love your description of the crab cannery ship John um I find it fascinating that I mean, and awful, but fascinating that the author was killed, you know, and didn't really get to finish the book. And yet, that does that add a little something to it, perhaps? I don't know. The, the fact that maybe... It, I think it, it does. T- it, yeah. yeah.
4: Yeah, like, he was living the story as well. He's like... Right. It's part of him and he's killed for these views. It's like, so like, part of him is left in this story. Do you know what I mean? It's like his struggle... Yeah in Japan at the time is in this story and he's murdered yeah. for it and a lot of people were killed on the ship as well so it's like it's a powerful story from like a it sounds th- it sounds brutal as well I think he was 29 up to 31 it was one of the, that age range wow he was dead young
2: wow gosh yeah I mean there's uh, the 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 fact that you feel like a mutiny building throughout the book as well that sort of sense of I loved how you described that and I thought gosh yeah I bet if that's done well you know that that's so gripping isn't it um, and to really you know to really relate to those characters that don't really have names as such um, I don't know it and I'm just, I'm absolutely intrigued and fascinated now that you've you've talked about that and I do think that you, you talked about translation and you talked about books in other languages not necessarily getting audiences outside of their own country and I I do think that that perhaps that's changing a little bit now and you know with with book prizes like the International Booker and various others you know we we, we're getting to see a bit more of those novels specifically in translation and and getting a, a different view on cultures and a different like you you said Monica earlier it's like it's a very different way of writing you know the, the the japanese style um so i absolutely love that john i thank you for bringing it to our attention and the murakami just sounds bonkers and brilliant. Yeah, yes you know, like w- when you said um there's there's fish fish rain from the sky i had this image from the film magnolia have you seen that where frogs fall from the sky
3: i've not seen it but i might have to now
2: yeah it's I mean it's John John seen it it's uh, it's a yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson film I think from maybe like the 9 uh, 99, 2000 something like that it's quite old now isn't it 2001 I think it was is it he knows it's he a classic knows.
3: That's probably why that's probably why I've not seen it then because I was at 6
2: <laughs> Ugh you make me sick um, you should you should seek it out uh, because you you said about this book, you know, magical realism has to be done well. Mm-hmm. And I think you're absolutely right. It isn't, a, it isn't a go-to genre for me either, but I'm also not like, oh, I'd never read that. It's just that when it is done right, you, you go, yeah, because you sort of buy into it. And I think that's the key. You have to buy into the fact that cats are talking, and in the case of this book, you know, and fish are raining from the sky. And in a film like Magnolia, when it starts raining frogs, you sort of just go, yeah, that's what's happening. So me and John recommend that one to you and this book honestly sounds fascinating and I must read it it's going on the list I love that you were so obsessed with it when reading it that you were like no nothing nothing else please don't talk to me I'm not answering that email you know and yeah it's a rare book book. yeah 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 um so thank you both for for, for the pictures I I love the sound of both of them But, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna take Kafka on the shore.
1: Yeah. I feel like
2: it just what? tipped in. I'm gonna take Kafka on the shore. I think it was the fish. I think. I think it was the fish that clinched it. But if it's any consolation, John, I'm also now ordering the crab cannery ship just Me
3: so too.
2: I can read it because I, do, I genuinely thought you, you know, you brought you've brought this book to the attention of ours and everyone listening. I think it sounds. Brilliant, if if not a little brutal. But, um, yeah, I'll definitely be checking that out. So thank you. And I have read a, a few uh, Murakami books, but not this one. And you absolutely sold it to me. Mom, so, <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, so that's two to add to your list, as well as all the other fabulous recommendations from our guests. And two more are Fishtown by John jared Fagan. It's out now. It's published by Guts. And Teeth in the Back of My Neck by Monica Radajevic. It's also out now, and it's published by Murky Books. Uh, what an absolute pleasure to spend this time with you! Thank you so much for for being here, for your recommendations, for talking about your poetry. We could carry on for hours, but I think it's probably time we go and have a cup of tea. Um, Monica, John, what a pleasure! Thank you.
3: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here, and it was lovely to meet you both. And John, I, I'm I'm just gonna I'm gonna have to read your book. I, I can't wait.
4: Thank you very much. Cheers, Joe and Monica. Yep, I'll be. Reading your poetry collection it sounds great as well. Ah, oh, see, we've all left as friends. <laughs> <Yes>.
3: <laughs> Even though I beat you.
4: <laughs> well, I do love Kafka on the Short, it's a great book. It's one of my oh, favourite the academy, so Oh, so you know you're
2: not you don't mind too much then, Charlie. No, you do not too much not at all.